um, kind of being introduced to a person that we know as the Apostle Paul, who is first known as Saul of Tarsus. And so part of the introduction to this character, I think we need to look at a few other places, uh, things that he has um, written in the pages of our Bible. So we'll kind of bounce around just a little bit. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 9, I'd invite you to take out your core guides, our core groups, our small group ministry here at the church uh, launches again for the spring session, and the first message that um, your groups will be discussing is this one. So on the inside, there's uh, the devotionals like normal, and then our discussion guide that's on the back, and the nice blank spot on the front for you to uh, jot down thoughts, questions, things like that that you would want to discuss with your core groups. So now that you're all comfortable and uh, in your seats, would you stand with me? I would like to read the first 19 verses of, of Acts 9. This is what Luke writes. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, so the early Christians were known as people of the way, uh, kind of a stemming uh, from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, also from, you know, Jesus encouraged people to follow along with him. So early Christians were known as people of the way. So if I can go find these people there, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoner to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all of the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So this guy, Saul, that we are introduced here, he grew up in a Jewish family, uh, but he was from a town that wasn't in Israel. He was from a city called Tarsus, which on the map is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, if you know your geography there. He was a Roman citizen, uh, but he had Jewish faith, so he's uh, positioned nicely in two different worlds there. Uh, Saul, as we know him, he was, he was a highly intelligent dude. This was a smart guy. Uh, he had a fabulous education. He made it into the best schools. Uh, he knew the scriptures better than most people. He studied under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel in Jerusalem. His parents kind of sent him off to boarding school. Hey, go, you got into this school with Gamaliel. Go absorb everything you can. He will get you into the right, all the right places. Unlock all the right doors and help you secure your future. He made it in. Gamaliel was one of the great, greatest rabbis of all of Israel. So Saul enters in, he, and he quickly rose to the top of his class. He, he excelled in school. Um, he learned how to become a Pharisee, and he was uh, a keeper of the Jewish and religious customs and traditions of the faith. You could say that he was a zealot. He was very excited and passionate about what he was doing. Uh, he was far more zealous than most of his peers. If, if you thought you were pious, Saul was more pious. So if you thought you could get ahead of Saul, he would work all the harder to regain that first place. He was rigorous in adhering to the law. This is this kind of a guy. Um, his mission as a Pharisee and a zealot was to keep Israel and the people pure. And the way to go about doing that for a Pharisee was strict adherence to the known law of God. And so he worked tirelessly to bring the people back to a rigid morality, a rigorous uh, adherence to the law that they knew. He, this was a Pharisee among all Pharisees. And, well, he didn't so much like this Jesus movement. There were these people, Jewish people, who had, in his mind, they had bought into this story over here about a guy named Jesus who claimed he was the Messiah, but he was crucified, and now all of his followers are running around telling people that he was raised from the dead and people are just kind of going in droves and, and this movement is, is gaining momentum. There's people that are actually believing all this nonsense. That's what Saul is thinking about here. Now, his teacher, Gamaliel, if you uh, go back in Acts to chapter 5, when Peter and John had been brought before the Sanhedrin, 
and they were trying to figure out what to do with the Jesus movement and, and these two fellows here. Should we kill them? Should we prosecute them in any way? What, what should we do? Gamaliel's advice was, don't do anything. Leave them alone. Because if, if it was a, a movement purely based on human notions, then what would happen was it would fizzle out and it would die on its own. They would be found out for the frauds that they were. But if it's of God, if this is truly a movement of God and the Holy Spirit among us, there's nothing that you can do that would stop it. So Gamaliel said, hey, you know what, just leave these people alone. Well, Saul, I don't think he agreed with his teacher on that one. And so he is working tirelessly to persecute these, this Jesus movement, the people of the way. They were a huge threat in his mind to the purity of Israel, to maintaining an orthodox faith. He thought their teaching was blasphemy. He, he thought these people were an abomination, and so he went after them. He's determined to put a stop to this heresy and in chapter 8, we read that um, Saul was ravaging the church by going house after house and hauling out the Christians and putting them in prison. He was the guy, if you remember, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when, when Stephen was stoned, Saul didn't chuck a rock, but he was probably standing there like this. He got what he deserved. This is Saul protector of the faith. And he's going after all of these Christians, and he heard this rumor on the street that the people, these followers of the way, had, well, as they dispersed from Jerusalem because they're afraid for their life, he heard that a bunch of them went north to a city called Damascus. And he was so angry he was so incensed by these people that he went to the chief priests and he says, hey, I need you to write me some letters because I'm, I'm going to round up a posse and we're going to go up to Damascus. I hear there's a bunch of these Christians hiding out there and we're going to round them all up and we're going to bring them back and we're going to put them in prison in Jerusalem. And the chief priests send him off with letters. Hey, this is okay. Go get those people of the way, this Jesus movement, bring them back, because we need to stop this thing. And he's on his way with his entourage. And something like a bright light, I don't know as if we can imagine it very well. Uh, maybe the best way to think about it is if you go to a movie theater at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and all the lights are off. And you know when you come out of the movie theater and you open the doors and you're like, oh my goodness, the light is just so bright. You, you, you have to do this. Or when you're driving at night and somebody comes at you with their brights on, you know, and something like that. Whatever it was, a flash of a bright light floored him. He's down. And he hears... A voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Why are you persecuting me? And did you notice his instinct? Was that it was the voice of the Lord? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, who was, who was Saul picking on? He was picking on the followers of Jesus, right? But do you see the connection? Do you see how close a connection Jesus has with what we know as the church? We are the body of Christ. That the murderous threats, all of the persecution that Saul was doing to these early believers, it was like it was happening to Jesus himself. Why are you persecuting me? And of course we learn that that he was uh, blinded in that moment, and when he gets up, he's staggering around, and, and you have this powerful man, and, and now he's, he's kind of being led, you know, I don't know how far from Damascus he is, we're not told, but he's led by the hand as a blind man into the city. Now, Luke tells us this account here in chapter 9, but the same account appears three times in the book of Acts. Um, and we'll get to them as, as we go along. But the, the story is included in our Bibles not to give us a pattern of what every conversion to Christianity is supposed to look like. Some might happen in this fashion, but I think, I think Luke has it in his mind to repeat this story three different times to make sure that we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that absolutely anyone, anyone can be saved. I mean, Saul would be the furthest person that we've read so far in this, this new Jesus movement. Saul is the furthest person person that we have come across that you would imagine would ever, would ever change his mind about Jesus. Luke wants us to know that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Not even somebody like Saul who is going around and hauling believers off to prison, presiding at the deaths of these early followers. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Luke wants us to know that. Saul's experience is sudden. It's kind of a a really surprising interruption into our story. But the person that you might look at as enemy, the person in your life that is kind of like a thorn in your side, the the person that you may just want to create a lot of distance between because they're just not nice to you or, and they maybe actively try and bring you down, God loves that person. They're inside the circle of God's grace. When we read about the terrorism against Christians, the persecution going on in our world, the people 
inflicting all of those wounds and harms. They're inside the circle of God's grace. Anyone, enemy, adversary, uh, whatever adjective you want to use to describe them, God has eyes and a deep love in his heart that one day every tongue would confess. I think the story's in our books because Luke wants to remind us of that because when, when we read an account like this, it's really easy for hate to crystallize in the human heart. And when we read about how some people treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we're at risk of having anger and hate crystallize and begin to form a calloused heart inside us. And God says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because yes, they might be persecuting and picking on my people. I still love them and envision a time where they too are inside the same family. This kind of a person, this Saul character, can be saved. He knows that he's one of the worst. I mean, he writes it to his protege, Timothy, if you want to turn with, turn with me, 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, or you can just write this in your notes and, and come back to it. But in 1 Timothy 1, he's, he's telling him, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He knows he's a sinner. He knows. He recognizes, wow, I was blind. I, I was ignorant to all this. I heard all of this teaching and I thought it was blasphemy. But yet God's grace and mercy still reached out to even somebody like me. It's not just a story about Saul, it's a story about all of us. Anyone who we would think is beyond God's grace, even if it's us, because sometimes maybe we have some things in our past or things in our present and we get to the point where we're like, I don't, I don't even know if God can love me for that. I don't, I don't know if I can be forgiven. The point Luke is making is yes, yes, you can be forgiven. God's mercy and grace extend to you. The word, the word of God repeatedly calls us to change our vision, to change our mind about people who we think are just maybe too far gone. And so I think one of the prayers of, uh, for us coming out of a story like this is, Lord, open my eyes. Give me your eyes. Give me your heart to see people and know people like you do. So we come out of this experience on the road with 
Saul, and he's led off to Damascus, and he is, um, he's, he's sitting in a room in Damascus in the dark because he's totally blind. He's praying. Uh, he is fasting. We learned that from the story. Uh, he's, I'm, I'm sure that he is totally confused at this point. He was brought up with a superb education. He knew the scriptures better than anyone. And he thought that he had it right. And now he's find out that maybe, maybe I was wrong about just a few things. And so to have all of that unravel before you in a moment, and then to, to sit for three days in the dark, fasting and praying, I imagine what's going through your mind is, oh my goodness, I screwed up. What's going what's gonna to happen to me now? I mean, I'm, I'm totally blind. And God tells this guy named Ananias to go visit him. And Ananias is, Ananias is afraid, you think? I mean, he's heard about this Saul character. He knows that Saul has letters approving his action of going and finding all the Christians in Damascus and taking them back to prison where who knows what is going to happen at the other end. And so, in a moment like that, what's the natural instinct for a person? Run! Flee! Get out of here! We're, we were in Damascus. We thought maybe this was safe enough, but maybe we just haven't gone from Jerusalem far enough, so we're out. And Ananias, I think he's got his bags packed already. Hey, kids, we're going. And God says, hey, I want you to go to this house on this particular street, and I want you to go and pray. Put, lay your hands on a guy from Tarsus. His name is Saul. Um, Lord, I think what I just heard you say was... <laughs> I got the straight street, and I, got the, I can pray for somebody. I got hands. I can, I can lay hands on somebody. And I can even lay hands on somebody from Tarsus. I can do that. But you said his name was Saul? I don't think so. I'd rather not. God says, go. Ananias is confronted with the choice, is he not? I can obey, or I can flee. I can be Jonah, or I can be Ananias. And he decides to be Ananias, and he goes. And he finds the house, and there's Brother Saul. Enemy Saul, as he enters. But he lays his hands on him, and his first word is brother. Now, if that's not a powerful statement in our scripture, I don't know what is. Somebody who's your sworn enemy. Somebody who has been going around killing your friends who are Christians. God asks you to go to a place because they're blind and they need a healing touch from the Lord and, they, and God wants you to do it and he says go and do this and you walk in and you... Okay, I'm going to get in and get, get it out. Is that okay, Lord? okay, you, you should be healed, and I'm out of here. Because you don't know what's going to happen, but he lays his hands on him, he says, 
brother Saul. Those aren't enemy words. Those are family of God words. Those are words of welcome. Those are community words. Those are healing words. Saul knows he's wrong about a few things. Saul knows that in that kind of a world, the most natural reaction for people who he's been persecuting would be for them to swing back when he is at his lowest. And yet Ananias goes there and he says, brother, brother Saul, welcome, welcome to the family. You know, folks, we get to do the same thing. When people come to Jesus, they need a welcoming committee. They need people to reach out and say, brother, sister, welcome to the family. Whatever differences we may have had in the past, you're part of the family now. Not just sort of a member of the family, not just a probationary member of the family. You're a full-fledged member of the family of God. You're my brother. You're my sister. Welcome. I had the privilege of um, being at uh, the, the sealing of, the signing of an adoption this past week. And so I was at the courthouse, and I ran into a friend of mine who's a prosecutor, and he's, what are you doing here? Are you court or something? And I'm like, well, I'm here for an adoption. He's like, oh, you're here for happy court. <laughs> what an appropriate description, and what a wonderful thing to be able to participate in something like that where somebody is welcomed, not just as a sort of a family member, but a full family member with all of the rights and privileges of a family. When people come to Christ, that's our responsibility, but it's a privilege. And we ought to be about that kind of a work, welcoming people into the family of God. And that, that's all good stuff so far, right? Coming out of just this, this little story, but wait, there's more. There's some good stuff, but I really want you to consider this. Paul couldn't see until God blinded him. He was physically blinded for three days until Ananias touched him, but while he was physically blinded, the eyes of his soul were opened for the very first time. See, Saul fell into the pattern of his ancestors. They had eyes but could not see. They were spiritually blind. One thing that's become evident in reading through the Old Testament out loud so far, it repeated over and over and over. The people had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They kept going off in their own direction. We want to do our own thing. We're distracted by all these sorts of things, and that's very nice, God. We, we need you here in the moment of our distress, but other than that, leave us alone. This stuff is way more interesting over here. 
They had eyes, but they could not see, and Saul fell into the trap of his ancestors. I think this is the way God works in our lives. He's got, he has to blind us to give us sight. But we have our eyes fixed on the things that we care about, the visions of all of the things that we're pursuing in life, things that, all the things that we tend to get our identity wrapped up in. Our eyesight is focused on those things, and God has to blind us from those things sometimes so that we get a full vision of what he would have for us. Sometimes we're focused on really good things, sometimes bad things. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. Sometimes we're just focused on things other than God. And God wants our eyes to be focused and fixed on him. On him, not a thing, not stuff, not popularity, but on a person. Fix your eyes on a person. And his name, his name is Jesus. When was the last time you said the name of Jesus not in a song or in cursing? Say his name. Say it again. That's a powerful name, isn't it? That's an incredible name to speak out loud. That, that's a name that if you speak out loud too many times, it'll stop some rooms in their tracks. That's a name that commands attention when you speak it. It creates tension in some places where you would speak the name of Jesus. Sometimes it creates division in some places that you would speak it out, out loud. The name of Jesus, our Lord, it's powerful. It's such a wonderful, good name that even the mention of his name, it commands a surrender of some sort. Look with me at verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. When Ananias objects to going to visiting Saul, uh, Jesus tells him, Hey, no, you have to go because Saul is my chosen instrument. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about a, an instrument, a vessel, um, something that is designed for a particular purpose. So Saul had a set of experiences in his life. He had excellent training. He knew the scriptures better than anyone. He was a Roman citizen, so he, he had uh, some credibility and ability to travel and communicate in the Roman Gentile word, world, but he was also Jewish, right? And so he had an authority and a credibility as a Pharisee, as somebody who knows the traditions and the history of the Jewish faith. So he's got, he's got both. He is specifically experienced and designed for a purpose that God has in mind. And he says, he's my chosen instrument. And when I was in uh, junior high and high school and college, um, 
I was in the band, and my instrument that I played was the French horn. And, you know, the French horn, it's kind of an odd-looking instrument. You know, it's kind of round, and it has the bell, and, the, and you kind of hold it like this. And a French horn has a very specifically designed case. You don't make mistake a French horn case for a trumpet case. I would carry my French horn back and forth from school, and, and I'm carrying it around, and people would say, what's that? And I always used to joke around with them because the case, it kind of looks like it's hauling a portable toilet because <laughs> it's got this, you know, bell-shaped thing, so you could sit it just right. And so I would always joke around with them. They're like, what? I'm like, it's the French horn case. It was designed for a specific purpose. Saul was designed, God had blessed him with the opportunity of very specific experiences and upbringing for reaching, taking, proclaiming the gospel into a world that it had not yet gone yet. He is my chosen instrument. He's the ideal ambassador to the Gentiles. Well, that's nice to read about Saul. We can, I think we all, I mean, I think I saw your heads kind of, oh yeah, that sounds about right. He has, God has given you specific experiences in life so far. You have interacted in a certain work environment. You have a certain upbringing. You go to different schools, workplaces. Uh, you've been in different geographical parts of the country. We look around, just look around the room. We all come from different circles, right? Some of our circles overlap quite a bit, but we all, in fact, have our own unique set of experiences. And you know what? God has chosen you, me. God chooses everybody, and we have, we have the responsibility to either respond in the affirmative or negative. But God chooses every person for something. We can respond or not. But you have a unique set of giftings a unique set of experiences that God could say about you, you are my chosen instrument to proclaim my word to fill in the blank, whatever it is, whatever circle it is that you travel in. You are, you are poised, you are trained, you are ready, you are God's chosen instrument. So it's not just a story about Saul. When we read scripture, we have to remember that it, it's a living word, and it still speaks to us today, and we probably ought to remind ourselves once in a while that God created me for a specific purpose. I am his chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to my group of people. I thought somebody might say amen there. He was a chosen instrument so that, phrase continued, he would proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Literally. Uh, th that's the NIV rendering. I, I don't like the NIV rendering of that sentence. It, proclaim my name to the Gentiles. It sounds good. It, it's true. 
But the word for proclaim is, it's better translated as the word carry. He is my chosen instrument, vessel, clay pot, jar, instrument case, whatever it is. He is my chosen vessel. What, are, what do the instruments do? They carry things, right? The cases, the vessels. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name <clears throat> to the Gentiles. Have you thought about that before? That when God saves you, when God redeems your life from the pit, he does so so that you will carry his name? You get to carry the name of Jesus. Wow. That's a pretty cool responsibility. That's a pretty awesome privilege. I read about a kid, he's, um, don't give me grief over this, but he's from Wisconsin, so you know what his favorite sports team is. But <clears throat> he wore the same or he wore a Brett Favre jersey. I hope it wasn't the same one. He wore a Brett Favre jersey to every single day of high school. Four years, every day of school, he wore a Brett Favre jersey to school. Do you know what he cared about? Could you tell, maybe? He was carrying somebody else's name, was he not? Names are a really powerful thing. We get to carry the name of Jesus. Amen would be good, yes. <laughs> Work with me, come on. In the Old Testament, there are repeated stories of instructions on the construction of the tabernacle, the moving tent that was the house of the Lord in the presence of Israel. There are repeated instructions on the building of the temple. Do you know what the most common reference in the Old Testament is for what the purpose of the tabernacle and the purpose of the temple was? To house the name of the Lord. And if you remember in the pages of the New Testament here, somewhere, multiple places, it says, we're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who have the privilege of carrying the name. You are the place where the name of the Lord Jesus Christ resides. And we carry it to all sorts of different places. That's an awesome responsibility. It's a privilege that's worth about anything to attain. We get to take the name, carry the name of Jesus to a world who desperately needs to hear it and hear the love and forgiveness that it represents. It's worth any cost to achieve. I was watching a little video this week. Um, Karen was in the office and 
she said, my, my girls were watching this video on this thing, it's called the um, Chinese Luna Moth. And it is a, it's a, just like a three or so minute video that, that, um, that shows, kind of in time lapse, uh, a, the, the larva. I think I'm, I might get the science wrong, so forgive me for that. But it starts off with a little caterpillar. And it, it starts off as smaller than a pine needle. And it feeds mostly on pine needles. And it starts off as a caterpillar, and by the end of it, you see the, the fully formed, the, the moth that emerges from the cocoon. And it, it sheds its skin three different times. It starts off kind of a blackish color with yellow highlights, and of course it hardens, and then it, weak, it works its way out of its skin, and when it comes out, it's orange. And then uh, it, it hardens over again, and it works its way out, and it's kind of this pinkish color. And it turns from this pinkish color into this bright green. And finally, it will uh, shed that layer too. But partway through the video, there's this freeze frame of it and this caption, and it, it had a circle drawn around um, this picture that the, the luna moth sheds its face as one of the phases. It sheds its face. That, and I got to thinking about that. When we take on the name of Jesus, he's called us to carry his name. When we take on the, the name of Jesus, we have to shed our own name. We have to Shed our face, if you will. You can't carry the name of Jesus and carry your own name at the same time. It's not Jesus hyphenated whatever. It's not a hyphenated name. When you carry the name of Jesus, you carry Jesus' name and you let yours go by the ways. Not that there isn't any longer any personal identity. That's not what we're talking about here. But you can't live for Jesus and for yourself at the same time. Those concepts just are opposed to each other. I mean, think about Saul. He shed his face, quite literally. God blinded him, and when Ananias touched him, it said that scales fell from his eyes. So literally, Paul's face, part of his face was shedding, and he was no longer who he once thought that he was. He was transformed and changed in that moment. At some point along the way, the names are so interchangeable, I might have mixed them up a couple times. We, we're introduced to Saul, but we know him better as Paul. Now, popular belief on the street is that Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's not in the text. It's actually not even in the Bible. Um, I think what happens along the way is that Saul recognizes that I'm, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm somebody who is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Now, I want to show you something really cool here. So the name Saul, you've heard that name before? First king of Israel, big, tall, strapping, mighty guy, warrior type. And so there's some... There's some images that go along when you carry the name Saul. Yes, I'm strong and I'm mighty. 
That sounds a little bit like the Saul we knew. Know-it-all, self-confident, arrogant, you know, sure of every step. I mean, he was a mighty guy, you know. People are going to listen to me, and I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do this and haul you off. I am somebody. Jesus calls him to himself, and he's transformed. The old is gone, the new has come, and he takes on he knows what his mission is, so he takes on this new name, and he starts going by Paul. Do you know what the name Paul means? Small. Humble. In Paul's own mind, he's gone from mighty, in charge, self-confident, to, you know, I'm just really a humble guy. I'm I'm really small in comparison to this name of Jesus that I get to carry now. Jesus' name is so large and powerful and mighty. In the face of that, I'm just humble and small. When we truly meet Jesus, we leave, we leave as changed people. Over time, the Holy Spirit works in our lives and says, you know what? That behavior, those thoughts, the way you talk, the vocabulary that you choose, the places that you travel, the way you conduct your business, I think you can do better. I don't think those much line up with my character. And you're carrying my name, and if you're carrying my name, that doesn't represent my name. And so over time, the Holy Spirit kind of nudges us, sometimes just gets out the sharp stick and pokes us. And when those things come to our attention, this is, this is part of the process of uh, a church word, I know it's, a, it's like a 50-cent word, it's called sanctification. The process by which we become more and more like Jesus. It's like this Chinese luna moth. It shed its skin three different times before it turned into a moth. You know what? Sometimes we're going to have to go through shedding after shedding after shedding and getting rid of all of, getting rid of the skin of sin and bad habits and bad thoughts and all of those things. When the Holy Spirit nudges us, we've got to work our way out of that lifestyle. One more thing I want you to think about. The power of Jesus rests on us most powerfully when we are not powerful. Actually, when we are weak. So when hard times come our way, when this Christian journey just seems to be too hard to overcome, too hard to press on. It's in our weakness where Jesus is the most powerful. Paul writes about that in other places. 
And he, he knows that the struggles that he goes through, the battles that he faces, the persecution that he himself will face are all things that, that demonstrate how weak he actually is, but he celebrates those. He's grateful for those experiences. And he says, I can even find joy in my suffering because I'm learning the discipline of perseverance. And in my perseverance, this is the letter he wrote to Rome in chapter 5. He says, this perseverance leads me to a hope that I have in Jesus, that one day the process by which I go from a Chinese luna moth, from the larva all the way to the beautiful moth, someday that work is going to be finally completed. And I have hope in that day. The power of Jesus is most known when we recognize a certain weakness. Let me give you one more piece of good news. You still have time. You still have time to carry the name of Jesus. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh, it's too late for me. God, I don't know if he can forgive that. I might be too far gone, I might be too old, I might be too young, whatever excuse or objection you have in your mind, I, I just don't know if God would want me. You still have time to raise up the banner with Jesus' name on it. I mean, you're here, you're conscious, well, most of you, um, you're breathing, nobody's passed out, you still have time to carry the name wherever you go. I'm wondering if you would be willing to do that. It, it'll mean you're going to have to quit living for all the things in this world. It, it'll mean that you have to quit fixing your eyes on all the things in this world that you think are going to save you and help you get ahead. You're going to have to quit fixing your eyes on all of the things in the world that help you advance your name and not the name of Jesus. You're going to have to lay all of that stuff down for the sake of the name of Jesus. You're going to have to become a person of no reputation of your own, but one who upholds the reputation of Christ wherever you go. You're going to have to be a people who buys into the mission statement that Jesus gives us in Matthew 6, 33. He says, seek first the kingdom and righteousness. And all of those other things that we tend to focus our eyes on, I've got this. I'll take care of that. Seek first the kingdom and my righteousness. And the people of God said, mm, amen. I'm going to have our worship team come back up.